Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Policy Agenda Podcast. I'm your host, EJ Fagan, and today I'm joined by Katie Madel. Hello. I got your name right, Katie. I, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and on the phone, uh, I am joined by former project manager of the Policy Agenda's project, Sam Workman. Hello. And his colleague at the University of Oklahoma, Devin Carlson. Hi, glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you guys on. Uh, can you guys tell us a little bit about this project titled uh, Organizational Problem Solving and the Use of Research and Education? The, pro- the larger project stems uh, from sort of an um, interest in how in, uh, organizations process information. There's a lot of older literature, especially you know Ken Arrow's Nobel Prize lectures and... Um, Tom Hammond's old article about the effects of organization on agenda setting. And what Arrow notes is that the the prime importance of organization is in channeling information. Well, we're peeling that back to a more base level, and that is that organization really channels attention to things. And, um, and when you put that together with Tom Hammond's work on agenda setting, um, of course, then organization becomes important for the agenda, as I know both of your advisors would say. What is the organization? What does organization mean in this sense? Organization has to do with how bureaucracies are parsed up in terms of the problems they solve. So, in the Department of Education, for instance, you have organizations that are dedicated to student populations, organizations dedicated to um, um, uh, Title IX things, organizations dedicated to accountability. Uh, uh, Devin can speak a bit more to that and how it maps onto the agenda. Yeah, so I mean, within the Department of Ed, you have the Office of Post Secondary Education, the Office of Elementary and Secondary Education, and what we're what we're interested in is how these different organizations. Um, work to process, solicit, and process information to address problems in the in the policy space. Yeah, and so ultimately you can think about this as push effects and pull effects of organizations. The pull effects, uh, the supply of organization. That is, if you're the Office of Accountability, you're going to solicit information, be more attentive to information that pertains to the accountability of school systems or teachers or districts or whatnot. You're going to then use that information to push that into policy. So that information informs resulting regulatory policy. So can you give us an idea of where this project is at the moment? So right now, we are in the midst of coding all of the comments, the universe of comments on every education proposed education regulation um, in about the past decade. By paragraph, and that is about 90,000 comments. Um, We don't yet know how many paragraphs that is because we're working on parsing uh, a lot of PDF uh, submissions. Um, But the importance of that from a policy agendas perspective, or anyone interested in agendas in any manner, is that it allows us to get to sort of the, the, the politicking that occurs out in the policy community. Um, so let's, first off, 90,000 paragraphs are, is there some poor graduate students coding those or is this, um, is this all machine coded? So that's 90,000 comments, each of which has (laughs) several paragraphs. (laughs) So we're probably looking at millions of paragraphs. I would say so. So not Um, some poor graduate students. (laughs) Uh, no. So right now we, um, 
are, have a, a cadre of undergraduates who are parsing each of those comments into paragraphs. And then a second group of undergraduates at the, with who being directed by our graduate students and Sam and myself, who are doing the substantive coding, who are coding it by um, granular policy topic, as well as for the use of research evidence, the presentation of data uh, within that within each paragraph. And sort of this this is mostly sort of Devon's expertise on uh, substantive education policy. What we did is we took the policy agendas project codes and uh, broke them apart, broke the examples. They always list on those things apart and uh, added to a bit in order to study a more specific policy subsystem. So I actually have a question for Devin, I believe. Um, why, why did you choose the last decade? So you say in your proposal that you focus on the post um, Every Student Succeeds Act. Why, why the past decade? Why not a different decade in education history? That was partially dictated by data availability. <laughs> um, Regulations.gov makes easily available comments from the past decade, but prior to that, it's much a heavier lift to go find those and track those down. Yeah, so one of the easiest places, um, we're kind of switching back and forth between expertise here, but one of the easiest places to get information on regulatory commenting is regulations.gov. A couple things to know about it. it. It doesn't go back much past that, at least for the Department of Ed. And the other thing to know is agencies submit to it voluntarily, not by law. And so we're kind of bound by that. Um, the other tack you can take is, of course, to FOIA the comments, and um, they send you boxes and reams of paper that you then transcribe or something like that. Sam, can you give our listeners uh, a brief overview of how the notice and comment period works and um, what you're actually observing in these comments? Yeah, so, so what happens, um, the notice and comment procedure is outlined in the Administrative Procedures Act of 1946. And what it says is that when bureaucracies want to make policy, because that's what we're actually talking about here is bureaucracies making policy, they issue a regulatory proposal. Once they issue that proposal, it's published in the Unified Agenda and in um, the Federal Register. And that initiates, a, it's a proposed rule at that point, or rulemaking. And that initiates a comment period where any, uh, any group, any person in the United States, even, uh, for instance, convicted felons, can comment on uh, federal regulations. Uh, once the agency receives those comments, it compiles them in, into sort of a summary or understanding of the major points of the comments or key information. And by law, and as dictated by the APA, uh, agencies must respond to, their, to those comments in the revision of the regulation or be able to cite a legal or um, problem informational reason why they did not do so. That's defensible in federal court. And then that is used to inform uh, when we're informing these regulations that the, the the implication that there's an impact by the the comments on the actual law. It's not just pro forma. It's it's not just pro forma. It's in fact it's legally not just pro forma. Yeah. Um, now you touched on this earlier, but can you explain in in a little more detail the theoretical relationship you expect? So, where in which direction does information flow? And um, why does information flow in that direction? 
Well, the the key point here is is really the impact of organization on this information. And so uh, a lot of interest group studies of regulation, and um, Devin could speak more to this within education policy, but a lot of the studies of interest groups sort of assume that interest groups have this agenda, they provide information, and then they sort of force bureaucracies to do things by pushing levers. What we're saying is that because bureaucracies are uh, not just reactive institutions, that they make policy, that their organization conditions this supply of information from the beginning. Interest groups can only react to regulations that are proposed, right? And so the bureaucracy sets the agenda uh, in that regard. And how the department structures their, their proposed rule, the topics on which they propose rules, that is all going to structure the information that the department takes in um, from interest groups and, and other interested entities. And you can imagine a situation in the Department of Education, for instance, where you have uh, Title IX challenges or civil rights and liberties concerns, um, uh, concerns about racial disparities or class disparities, right? Um, those organizations may very well uh, be more amenable to legal information than sort of policy research. Whereas if we get into an area concerned with uh, teacher quality or student uh, outcomes, um, that's that's organization may care more about the policy research than legal requirements for fairness and equality and these sorts of things. I mean, I mean, is stakeholder impact a big part of this, too? I mean, we yes, we are interested in looking at the different groups that comment, who comments on what topics, how do they present information? What type of information do they present? How is that considered in the regulation? And so we're looking at the interplay between the organizations within the bureaucracy, within the U.S. Department of Ed, and the stakeholder groups on the outside that provide the information. And so we're really looking at that dynamic rather than just each entity on its own. Yeah, the, it's not a simple story of saying that bureaucracies dictate policy or interest groups dictate policy. This is all about uh, the uptake of information, um, the creation of demand for it, and how it gets processed within organizational structures. And rulemaking is uniquely um, is uniquely a, a uniquely good place to look at this because groups are free to participate or not. It's not like a hearing where they have to be invited. And so we can see who chooses to participate versus who sits this out. Um, on both the presentation of information and the topics on which they choose to comment. How generalizable is all of this? I mean, you're focusing on the one case study of the Department of Ed, but how generalizable to who is this to other departments and other policy areas? Well, it just so happens um, that I've contemplated this across multiple policy areas uh, for a good portion of my career at this point. And I would say that this is very generalizable. And it's generalizable for some specific reasons related to regulations. Regulations aren't like hearings. Um, they're very detailed. Um, the, the sort of text, well, we're saying text, but the sort of arguments and descriptions are very tightly tied to the nature of the problem. And so you don't get the Save America Act or anything being issued by bureaucracy. Um, that means that you're able to study policy, um, specific policies, and, and 
sort of examine specific argumentation attached to those policies in a way that you simply aren't in nearly any other branch of government. I'd like to talk about education policy more specifically now. Uh, what during this period, what problems and policy areas, I guess generally, are you are you observing? What's what's the most common uh, uh, policy discussion going on at the at the Department of Education? Well, I think there was, you know, given the the breadth of the Department of Ed, there was a few different policies that were being discussed. There's a, there's a group of higher education policies, which is historically what the department has focused on: um, student financial aid, the um, Title IV financial under Title IV that gives financial aid to institutions. Um, so there is that line of issues and policy topics related to higher ed. At the same time, there was also a pretty robust reform agenda at the K-12 level. So we're talking about accountability, school choice, teacher quality. All of those were at their heights during the period that we're studying. And at the tail end, there's been more of a focus on transition from um, K-12 to college and careers, right? So that 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 kind of spanning the two historical foci of the department um, has really started to emerge in the last few years, talking about college and career-ready standards, career and technical education. Um, and so I'd say those are the three main strands of debates that have been going on within the department over the past decade or so. Are those debates simultaneous? Are they happening? Is the department walking and chewing gum or is it is it serial? Is it one thing, then one thing, then one thing? They're largely simultaneous. What the, the, the higher ed policy debates happen almost completely independently of the K-12 policy debates. Um, and they're both ongoing at the same time. And I, I would also argue to, and, and to put a sort of a, a broader wrapper on this, is that a lot of what we have initially found is that a lot of the larger debates uh, that you see occurring in the public are not necessarily those most attended in the elite discussion of education policy. And so, for instance, I mean, our, our initial findings indicate that um, these groups and citizens, by far, the, the thing they care most about are governance issues. The debates going on in the regulatory uh, policy and, and setting up that framework aren't really about student scores or teacher quality. They're about governance. They're about the structure of, uh, of the governance of education. So who gets money? Who gets to make decisions about how that money is spent? And so to, to build on that, I think one of the bigger surprises of what we've seen so far is what is typically characterized as the policy debates in, in, you know, the, among the policy subsystem, the actors, the interest groups, the advocacy organizations, is not what's playing out in comments on regulations. We're seeing some of the most influential groups being higher education institutions and um, state education agencies and local school districts, right? Those aren't considered advocacy organizations in any sense of the uh, policy debate, but they are highly influential in, in the regulatory comment process. So influential, in fact, that whenever you sort of um, try to place uh, groups or group types in space, it's these institutions that really structure the space for everyone else. And that really gets to the heart of sort of the larger research program and, and understanding how organizations influence policy agendas and the information supplied within them. I'd like to push you on that a little bit. I mean, I think um, I mean, if you ask me to name who are the most important players in the education policy debate, 
I, you know, maybe I would name some of those those education advocacy groups and, and, and those types of things. But if I asked an, an interest group scholar, I feel like they would name the big the institutions of higher education and the big, well resourced, well organized groups. I mean, is it a surprise that they are they're so prevalent in, in, in essentially the people who the, the stakeholders are, are are so prevalent here, or um, or or should it be counterintuitive? So I think it would be surprising to, pe- to people who participate in the policy debates on a day-to-day basis. It might not be right. surprising to a political scientist, but if you go to D.C. and talk to any of those think tank folks or any of the folks in the advocacy organizations, local school districts don't come to mind. Maybe teachers unions do, um, but state education agencies, they're as far from their brain as, as any group um, in, in structuring that policy space. So why, why do you think the, there's the difference? Well, I think there's a difference largely because the notice and comment, you know, period is not flashy, right? It's it's not what gets funders to grant you money to do studies or to advocate for a given position, but it is the process that really determines how how policy issues play out. It also goes to a larger, I think, public misunderstanding of what regulations are. So when we think, when we say the word regulation, what most people think is a bureaucracy somewhere is telling someone what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. But the reality is, when government gives gives resources, goods, rents, assistance to anyone, um, it occurs and is com- almost completely defined by regulatory policy and in this process that we're talking about. And even grants for things like FEMA play out over the course of regulatory policy. On this topic of these interest groups, um, one of your findings that you sent us showed all the different interest groups and the number of comments that they've provided. Is this, is when an interest group provides more comments, is that just a result of the size of the interest group? Or are there some really small interest groups with not a lot of resources just putting out a lot of comments on education policy. I think I think the way to think about it is not in terms of size. And so if, if you sort of take some diversity scores, probably some you guys would be familiar with, like entropy or Herfindahl indexes or something, what you find is that the larger groups, it's not so much that they're able to comment more frequently, but you have to understand the diversity. So they can comment more frequently across more topics. Okay, so the bigger organizations that are better funded are more spread across topics, so they're more fully engaged in the policy process. Uh, the smaller groups tend to be have more, we could say, niches for commenting, right? So charter schools are acutely focused on uh, the issue of school choice. And I think that's the that's the that's the better way to sort of understand it. And some of these larger groups, just to read them kind of off off your list here, things like the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, right? No surprise there. Large teachers unions. Um, you've got the some version of a state Department of Education from states like Colorado, Illinois, Ohio, New York, several others, and a couple of advocacy groups in there. But for the most part, those those are the big ones. Um, this seems to be very focused on K to twelve education to me. Even though you show that a lot of the the agenda is focus is is higher education. Am I right about that? Or yeah, and so a, a lot of the agenda is higher education. Um, 
The thing you have to understand, though, is that it is education evolves. So back, back when I wrote my book in 2015, um, the largest producer of uh, regulations on education policy, and this, this was uh, not in 2015, but, but going back the previous decade, was actually the Veterans Administration because they read all the regulations for the GI Bill. So what what we see and what our data tend to show is this larger reform taking place, a shift in attention from um, federal attention to higher education to K-12 education. I think Devin can back me up on that. And I think it also reflects the politics during the Obama years, which was if you think back to what were the major education initiatives you hear, you think of race to the top, right, which was a K-12 initiative. You think of um, waivers from No Child Left Behind. You think of teacher evaluation. And so all of that higher education dimension was still ongoing, but there wasn't any major reform, right? It was still just kind of chugging along as it had been. Um, now, in the in the more recent years, there's been a greater focus on for-profit institutions, right? So our data collection might have not captured this. What we sent you was based on a, a, a sample of of you know proof of concept for the for the grant, but it might not have captured what was happening in the higher education dimension in more recent um, times. I would also add to that that I think one of the things you see over this period um, provides us with an understanding of shifts in issue attention. That is, these larger reform movements have consequences for issue attention. You can think of them like plates on the earth, and when the plates collide, you get things like subductions, you get mountains, Right. And so as these larger reform movements um, collide, so, so this fundamental division between higher ed or K-12 versus the reform movements focused on accountability, school choice and things like this, what happens is some issues get pushed to the surface. Others get um, pushed down below the surface. And so um, that all goes with this larger understanding of the dynamics of attention within the, in the policy area. Do you think the student loan uh, uh, budget time series is a mountain? Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave that be. Uh, so is there a partisan difference here? I, I think about the the Obama Department of Education and you know, Barack Obama appoints Arnie Duncan, who's the Chicago school, Schools Administrator, as his first education secretary. Um, it's very focused on that, that, that the, those types of issues. The Democratic Party has obviously a long history with teachers, with schools. I mean, this is a not only a Democratic Party policy priority, K-12 education, but it's one where characterized by, I mean, stakeholders is one word, but by interest groups. But then Betsy DeVos comes along, who is um, a, a, basically a Republican ideologue, right? She's a, an American Enterprise Institute fellow, kind of following some of my own research, and should, what is is the department going to take a very different the, the the regulatory environment going to take a very different character under the conservative than under the liberal? I think absolutely it will. Um, it was actually I think quite remarkable how how much continuity there was from W George W Bush to Barack Obama. That was remarkable in how consistent the education policies were from you know two thousand one to two thousand fifteen or so. But I think under the Trump administration and with Secretary DeVos, things have changed dramatically. I mean, we've already seen um, her scaling back the um, the transgender guidance that the Obama administration provided. We've seen new regulations on um, Title IX. 
We've seen new regulations on um, any number of topics that are completely 180 degrees opposite from what the Obama administration did. And so I think we will absolutely see a shift from the Obama to Trump administration departments. So, for example, LGBT groups might show up in the lobbying data after 2017. I think that's I think that's probably right. Yeah, I would also add to that larger story. And it builds on sort of this notion of continuity between Bush and Obama is that it might you might be it might be a step too far to say we can we can point out the secretary as the source of this variation. What we're really talking about there is a set of presidents devoted to education reform, whether you agree with it or not, uh, versus one that is an avowed enemy of regulatory process. And so <laughs> uh, there's a substantive bit of this, and there's a procedural bit of this. And to build on what Sam said, I think the Obama administration's reliance on the regulatory process was unprecedented. They did a lot of policymaking via guidance letters and, 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 and the regulatory process and did it in a manner that can easily be undone by the Trump administration and, and Secretary DeVos's uh, department. Where is Congress in this process? Uh, in the regulatory process? Well, in specifically in the Department of Education over this time period, right? We have a very large education reform passed in 2015, 14? 15, yep. Well, I think con the, what Congress does is set the broad agendas for bureaucracies. Um, but if you think about the sort of stuff Congress does, um, they're giving broad form to the regulations that you end up seeing at the Department of Education that are then heavily influenced by whoever the president is and whoever his or her pick for um, the SEC-Ed would be. But in terms of oversight, as with all the other policy areas, there is none. <laughs> and with with Congress, they, they did pass the Every Student Succeeds Act in, in, in 2015. But I think a lot of what we'd see regulatory regulation-wise is is quite similar what you saw to the after passage of No Child Left Behind because the topics involved in that legislation didn't really change. It was just the substance around them, the the the, the details about how often you had to test and what subgroups had to be put together that were that were altered under ESSA. I think the other thing you have to remember is that bureaucracies have to be responsive to problems on the ground as they emerge. And grants of authority to the bureaucracy are grants forever. The Department of Education can issue a regulation pursuant to something from 1995 today, the same as something from 2015. So thinking about going back pre No Child Left Behind, because I think we, I think you're, what I've seen in education policy makes a lot of sense for this being largely continuous since No Child Left Behind, but I'm wondering before No Child Left Behind, do you, do you, I, I know that we don't have the uh, comments for back then, but do you just think based on what you know of ed education policy that, you know, post, say, uh, a nation at risk, whenever the accountability movement started, do you think we're still going to have these interest groups acting in the same ways and being involved in similar ways? Or do you think that there's a difference from when these major laws passed? So I think you can really delineate the education policy space at the federal level with No Child Left Behind, because that was the first time 
um, Title I funds were at risk if they didn't follow the directives of regarding standards, accountability, and testing. Um, before that, states were encouraged to do all those sorts of things, but most of them, many of them just simply ignored it. And No Child Left Behind and the, you know, using the stick of Title I funds is really what changed the federal involvement in, in federal education and um, policy environment. And I would, I would say before that, you have a very long run of history following the Second World War where the federal government's main focus had to do with linking edu higher educational outcomes to economic growth and things. So you had, you had that sort of current. And then I think the other current was mostly fo focused on um, uh, civil rights and civil liberties concerns. Yeah, I think from 1965, from the initial elementary and secondary education act through about a nation at risk at the K-12 level, it was almost purely equity considerations. Uh, nation at risk really started some focus on excellence that really came into being with no child left behind. Um, and so I think, yeah, you might see a little of that show up between a nation at risk and no child left behind, but it was really no child left behind that changed the 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 game regulatory wise, regulation wise at the federal level. Yeah, it was a it was a shift in focus that not only um, not only presaged sort of attention to um, the secondary level of education, but also um, jumbled the issues in the ways you can sort of observe in the data. I suspect that, you know, if, I, if, if we could you know, do the same analysis back in the 1990s before No Child Left Behind, that it would be a very different lobbying environment because those stakeholders probably come only after the law passes, right? They chase the money rather than prompting Congress to, to, to do so, or they can't, I guess they can't prompt the Department of Education to do so. But those education reformers that you expected to play a much larger role would be the ones really driving that change. I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, prior to No Child Left Behind, it would be primarily state departments of ed and school districts commenting on how um, funds should be distributed and allocated, um, and much less on substantive policy issues that they were going to be required to implement. And at the federal level, a tremendous attention to um, things like the GI Bill and setting out uh, regulations that, that sort of guided how it would be dispensed, who would dispense it, and um, having banks be major players as well. So as we, as we wrap up, um, I'd just like to ask you guys, um, what, else, what else should we read when we, when we think about education, uh, education policy and regulatory uh, agenda setting? What, what um, recent work, besides your own work, uh, should our listeners find? So Paul Manna has done some tremendous work um, about the politics of education. Um, Collision Course is one book that really details the politics of No Child Left Behind nicely. Um, prior to that, he has Schools In, which is about um, federalism in education. Jeff Hennig at Teachers College in Colum at Columbia, he is... Um, he, he does great work on, on the politics of ed, education as well, including the evolution of, of the partisan nature of, of education. Um, and so those are two names that come to mind um, immediately. Susan Moffat at Brown is another great scholar of, of education politics. And so those would be the ones that I would um, offer up. And also linking it to the broader regulatory process, I think. I think Susan Yockey's work on interest group participation and commenting is good. 
And in terms of how bureaucracies structure rulemaking, um, Rachel Potter at Virginia's work is also very good. And I'll actually, I'll actually add two, which I usually don't do here. Uh, one, my colleague Maram Dwidar's dissertation project on regu- on lobbying in the regulatory process, uh, coalitional lobbying, is, is excellent and I think really really fits into this literature. And uh, Christina Wolbrecht and her student, I believe his name is um, Mike Hartney, uh, wonderful pro- wonderful project on the reframing of education in this period before the No Child Left Behind um, uh, Act that we were talking about, where you see just a, a real shift in the frames that media use uh, to, to discuss education policy and then a shift in the party platforms. Um, but with that, thank you guys very much for joining me. Katie, thank you for joining thank me. Thank you. Uh, this has been your Policy Agendas podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.